Let us turn now to the chapter we read. Acts chapter 27. And we may read from verse uh, 21. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in this woman and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. For now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sailed with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be a good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Shortly ago, we considered Paul's uh, address in the presence of Festus and Agrippa. And after his appearance before these men, arrangements were made to have him transported to Rome from Caesarea. And uh, this chapter is the account of that journey. And of his, uh, and as you, if you ride on through to the middle of chapter 28, the account of his arrival at Rome. He was sent there under the charge of the Roman centurion, Julius, with uh, his own two close friends, Luke and Aristarchus, a member of the congregation Thessalonica. And uh, as we read, they were taken ultimately in a cargo boat sailing from Alexandria, heading towards Rome. The voyage was fraught with great difficulties and danger, but there was no question about the eventual outcome, for the Lord had told Paul long before this day that he, he would bear witness for him before Caesar. And indeed, the last, you could say, that the last ten chapters of this book from chapter 19 through to, certainly from verse 11, chapter 19, through to the end of this book. These ten chapters really revolve around that passionate desire of Paul's to see and to, to see Rome and to preach there. And uh, this was, conf it was confirmed to him by the angel of the Lord after his arrest in Jerusalem. You will bear testimony for me in Rome. He appealed during his trial to Rome, he appealed to Caesar, and was confirmed then that he would be sent to Rome. And the whole, the ten chapters revolve around this fulfilling of this passionate desire of Paul's to go and preach the gospel at Rome. But when he expressed that desire, little did he know that he would see Rome as a prisoner bound in chains. And uh, here we have the account then of his being transported from Caesarea under the charge of this Roman centurion Julius and uh, on board this cargo boat. And uh, when you consider 
how the Lord was here fulfilling Paul's great desire. You have here one of the clear instances in the Bible of how a person can be, as they tend to call it today, in the will of the Lord, and yet having that pathway of his fraught with considerable difficulty and danger. There are some people who are of the mistaken impression that if, or rather when, the Lord shows them a particular path in which to travel, that the Lord is going to make it easy for them to go along that way. Now that does not necessarily follow. An easy providence is no guide that you are in the right way. Indeed, there's a very instructive verse in this um, passage, in this chapter. After Paul had counseled the Roman centurion and the sailors with him in the boat not to sail, he must have had some kind of premonition, perhaps just his knowledge of the of the seas at that time of the year in that area. We don't know, but at least he counseled them not to sail. The centurion uh, conferred with the ship's master and the ship's owner, and they both advised that uh, they could sail. And naturally, the centurion, I suppose, naturally accepted the advice of the master and the captain. And you notice in verse 13, that when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained that purpose, losing thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, there arose against them a tempestuous wind called Eurocledon. Now there you have an, an, an indication of what I was speaking about. A fair providence, an easy path, outward circumstance suggesting to you that you're on the right way is no safe guide for you that you are in the way of the Lord and uh, on the other hand it can be and this thought may interest some people present perhaps though not all on the other hand you may be perplexed tonight thinking that you had the guidance of the Lord in a particular course of action and because things aren't working out well, because things tend to go against you and difficulties are arising, you may tend to think because of these things that you made a mistake. Well, that does not necessarily follow. I think it was Thomas Good on the Puritan who put it like this. God's providence can be for you and his word against you. And yet God's word can be for you and his providence against you. And that may be something for you to ponder tonight. I remember an old, a, a, a minister once putting it like this. They say, he said, that when you're in the Lord's will, that the Lord takes the difficulties out of the way. Well, he said, if I ever understood the Lord's will, I would say this, that was in doing his will, that I discovered difficulties in the way. 
Under this chapter is very instructive when you consider that here was Paul directed by God towards a predetermined end. Thou must testify of me in Rome. And yet from the moment that the Lord had said that to him, everything in his life seemed to suggest to him that he would never see Rome. He was arrested in Jerusalem. He escaped by the skin of his teeth from Jerusalem. He spent two years in imprisonment of imprisonment in Caesarea. He was tried by Jew and by Roman. And now as he set sail for Rome, the very elements themselves seemed to combine against him. And if ever there was a man of whom you would say, this man will never see Rome, that man was Paul. And yet, as we see, nothing could keep Paul from arriving ultimately in Rome. And uh, as he sails, and as you see him in this chapter, you discover, as someone put it, that the power of Paul was the power of his religion. On that ship, as written in this chapter, there were, there were 276 people. Roman soldiers, centurion, soldier, captain, officer, sailor. And yet, the true master of the situation was this man who was bound there as a prisoner, Paul, the disciple of Jesus. At first, as we see in a someone said, they despised him as a prisoner. But in time of peril, they obeyed his command. And after the shipwreck, when those who were responsible for the lives of the prisoners aboard proposed to kill them, the centurion's admiration for Paul is apparent in his refusal to comply with this request. The whole incident, the whole incident is a triumph of Paul's faith and no small tribute to his dynamic personality. And there are one or two things about this chapter that I want to deal with tonight, and with this, we draw our studies in the book of Acts to a close. First of all, I want to look with you at Paul's assurance in the storm. And then I want to look secondly at the wonderful illustration we have here of the predestination of God and the responsibility of man. And finally, and in a word, the deliverance and the manner of its accomplishment. First of all then, Paul's assurance in the storm. And you have that in verse 21 onwards. <clears throat> now, this is a very strange situation. Here you have a picture of a prisoner offering advice to all who were with him in the company, in, in, in the ship. His advice had been rejected, as I indicated earlier. He had counseled them not to sail, but they had rejected that advice. And now, here is this same man standing up in the midst of this tremendous storm and directing words of comfort and of counsel to their terrified hearts. And when we consider the assurance 
that was given to him. Let us look first of all at the people amongst whom he received it. After long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them. Now, <clears throat> this was where the Lord spoke these words of great assurance to Paul. In the midst of a very mixed company, indeed, as far as we know, there were only two people of like mind with him in that ship of 256 people, Luke and Aristarchus. The rest were, as far as we can gather, pagans. Some were courteous to Paul, some treated him with respect, others despised him. We know that there were people on board who were quite prepared to knife him. People are quite prepared to throw him overboard. But it was in that kind of company that Paul received this great and wonderful assurance from the Lord. It wasn't, as you may say, the most desirable of situations, yet it was there that this wonderful revelation was received. Now I think that this is something, uh, 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 this, there's, there's a this is very similar to circumstances which you and I may find ourselves in life. You see, when you and I talk about assurance, God speaking comfortably to us, we tend to think of that kind of experience in a particular situation amongst a particular type of person or people, with a particular group, in the midst maybe of people who are like-minded with ourselves. But that does not necessarily follow. It was while he was languishing in prison, and wrongly in prison at that, that Joseph knew much of the Lord's presence and the Lord's blessing. It was in the den of lions and in the fiery furnace that Daniel and his accomplices were, uh, and his associates were aware of the Lord's gracious presence. Similarly with Jeremiah, with Ezekiel. It was the same with that little slave girl in Syria. The Lord was good to that girl. The Lord blessed her in the midst of an alien environment. It was the same with Paul and Silas in the prison in Philippi. The Lord's presence was wonderful there, and the assurance of his presence was wonderful. The Lord spoke to Paul in the midst of these people. And you remember that if you are here tonight and you find yourself perhaps living with people who don't share your convictions regarding the gospel of Christ and the grace of God. If you work with our people who are antagonistic to the stand that you make, if you associate necessarily with people who don't uh, share your views and who, who would, uh, who would uh, destroy the faith that you so much love and cherish, you remember that if you are there in the will of the Lord, if that is where the Lord has placed you, you be sure of this, the Lord will not forget you. And you may have reason yet to look back on these circumstances and to thank God that you were in them. Because it was there that the Lord revealed himself to you in his grace, in his power, and in his love. It was in the midst of them that Paul received this assurance. And then notice, secondly, the place where this assurance was given. Not just the people, but the place. 
It was, as he put it himself, a, Paul said, you should have hearkened unto me, now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there stood by me this night the angel of God. Now the significance of that is this, that he received this assurance in the midst of one of the most terrific storms that literature gives us an account of. For 14 days and nights we read that they were driven by this tremendous wind. Seems as a northeasterly wind. They were driven by this tremendous wind for 14 days and nights. And the chapter here tells us that the weather was so grim, it was so dark that they couldn't, they didn't even have the light of the stars from heaven, nor of the sun. They were in darkness, driven by this tempest along an unknown coast, unable to take food for 14 days. It was after long abstinence that Paul stood up and spoke to them. And he counseled them that night to eat after 14 days, expecting at any time to perish in the deep. All hope was gone. It was a moment, there were moments, I'm sure, when they despaired. I don't know if there were moments when Paul wondered if he would ever see dry land again. It was a sad night for many of them, a dark night. For many of them it was the end of the line, confronted with their inability to cope, with their hopeless inadequacy, with their own weakness and their lostness, outward circumstances, driving them to use every single means at their disposal. They tied ropes who read on the ship. They threw everything over what they could think of. They tried everything imaginable. And still, they were driven by this tremendous storm. And it is quite probable, though we don't read this, that these men prayed as they never prayed before. Remember Jonah's storm. The men in the ship with Jonah, they prayed to their gods in agony of soul. And it's quite believable that these people have turned to something, crying to someone or to something for help. But no help was available to any one of them, save to Paul. It was then, it was there and then, that night, that the Lord spoke to Paul. And you know, here's another lesson for us. It is always when you need it most that the Lord will speak to you. It is always when you're at the end of your tether that help will arrive. Have you ever noticed in the Bible how two things are always tied inseparably together? The weakness of the human heart and the unlimited strength of God. He giveth power to the faint. And to them who have no might, he increaseth strength. You see the picture that Isaiah chapter 40 draws for us? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew strength. Those who have nothing left in themselves, nothing but God and God alone. It is then, as it were, that the two come together. God and the human heart. God in his power and man in his hopeless weakness and inadequacy. When all hope was gone, all help failed them. 
That night, he said, this night, the angel of the Lord stood by me. This has always been the case. It was when Israel and Egypt had come to conclusion, we will never be delivered. It was then that God came for the deliverance. And as I said, this is very often the case. You and I have to lose all hope in ourselves before we will ever turn to the Lord and before the Lord's nearness will be meaningful to any one of us. We have to be driven to the end of our own resources and our own strength and our own worthiness. All our self-righteousness have to, has to go. You will discover, my friend, that not even the Bible will help you. And I've no doubt that some of you, in extremity, in extreme cases, have turned to the Bible looking for help. And the Bible failed you. Prayer will fail you. Prayer won't save you either. People in great danger and difficulty have turned to prayer in the belief that prayer was going to save them. They will turn to this and they will turn to that. They will use every means imaginable for help and for succor and relief and strength. But there's only one thing that's going to help you and me. Not the means that God provides for us, but the God who provides the means. This night, he said, the angel of the, of the Lord stood by me. And that is why the gospel comes to you and to me with hope tonight. Amidst the storms and the tempests and the turmoils of life. On the sea, which can be quite tempestuous, a sea of temptation and fear and trouble. When things threaten to swallow you up, God will never fail. God will never fail. I think it's a tragic situation. When a person, as someone said to me quite recently, when a person reaches this stage in life, and when he says that there's nothing that can be done for me, speaking about a particular problem that he has, and uh, talking about the things that he tried, and uh, the place that he went to, and he said that's the conclusion he came to, that uh, he was beyond help. In this world, my friend, no one is beyond help. While you're in the room of mercy, God is available. God is near to all who call upon him. And he is there in all his glorious might to help you in all your felt weakness, in all your need, in all your hopelessness, in all your lostness, and in all your undoneness. And it wouldn't be a bad state of affairs if you and I tonight were to know this, that without him we have nothing and we are nothing that in our lostness we may come to him. That is often the place where God meets his people in the depth of their need. This night, he said, the Lord stood by me. And then Paul goes on to tell them about the privilege that this assurance conveyed to him. There are five things that Paul tells these people about this assurance. He told them that he had contact with heaven. The angel of the Lord stood by me tonight. He told them that he had a special relationship with heaven. The angel of the Lord, the Lord whose I am and whom I serve. 
And he told that a special comfort came to him from heaven. It's a comfort of it's a comfort of peace. Don't be afraid, fear not. And he communicated that to them. He told them that he got the promise of God from heaven. All that on the ship I have given unto thee all that sail with thee. And he told them as well that he had a confession to make about this God in heaven. This is a God that I believe. These five things very briefly. His contact with heaven that stood by me this night. The angel of the Lord. Now I've mentioned this often and it comes up now and again in this book. The wonderful place that the angels have in the life and the ministry and the experience of the Christians in this world. You and I don't see the angels. We might not even be aware of them. We might not even be aware of them. But they have a ministry to fulfill in the experience of each one of us. If we are the Lord Jesus Christ. They have a wonderful place in the salvation of Christ. They, as we were hearing often enough in the past days. They announced his coming into the world. They were there when he was tempted in the wilderness. They were with him in Gethsemane. They were there at the ascension, at the resurrection. They, at the resurrection and at the ascension. Their ministering spirit sent forth to minister to all them that are heirs of salvation. As Peter says, they, they look into, they gaze, they study the work of salvation tonight in heaven. They think about these things, what Christ has done for sinners in this world. And they are present with the, with the Lord's people in this world. The Bible leads us to believe that they bear the souls of believers to heaven after death. We know that they will come again when Jesus comes to judge the world with the holy angels. And they have a wonderful ministry in the lives of his people. The angel of the Lord, he said, stood by me this night. And as I said, we don't see them. We may not be aware of them. But in a very wonderful way, they minister to us in this world, if we are the Lord's. And that's a wonderful privilege to have from the Lord tonight. There are some people, I don't necessarily share this view, there are people who are of the opinion that every Christian has his own angel. I don't think we're warranted to, 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 to go that far from the Bible's teaching on angels. But we are warranted that they fulfill our ministry in the life of every single Christian tonight. And the angel of the Lord stood by me, he said. There are some people who take it from that word. Thomas Boston, the great Scottish theologian, believed that this word indicated that the angel was only there for a fleeting moment. That the angel didn't sit down beside Paul. His, his ministry was just, he had something to communicate and then he had to go to minister somewhere else. Or to return maybe to heaven above. He stood by me. An extraordinary visitation of the presence of the Lord. For a special purpose. It was an extraordinary experience. And goes there for see in a minute. For a special purpose. And then he goes on to speak secondly about the special relation he had with heaven. But stood by me this night the angel of God. Whose I am. And whom I serve. He refers to God as his owner, his master. Now we know in which way God owns every believer. He owns them from eternity. He left them, he set them apart from all eternity as his own. He gave them to Christ in eternity, in the covenant of redemption. Christ came into the world and he purchased them 
that God would have them through the blood of Christ. They are his by purchase. They are his by grace, called by God to serve them in this world. And they are his in the sanctifying, by the sanctifying influence of the Spirit. They are his in the commitment that they give him. The moment they are called by his grace, they respond, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I put another way, Lord, I am thine. This is his, this is his special relation with heaven. He speaks of God as his owner. And all that he is and all that he has, he brings to the Lord. Have you noticed that picture of the Christian in the Bible? Here's a man, a woman, a poor girl. They belong to the Lord. And all that the Lord has given them, they bring to the Lord. That's the picture. That's the ideal picture of the Christian living in this world. He brings his life under the authority of the Lord. All the substance that the Lord gives him in this world, all his money, all his talents, all his gifts, they are the Lord's. They are brought by him to the Lord's. His relationships, his time, his pursuits, if he's right, if he's the way he ought to be, I am the Lord's. You know the trouble with me with me tonight as Christians? We bring too much of ourselves under our own authority. And we don't bring ourselves enough under the authority of God. Can you make this claim tonight that Paul made? The angel of God, whose I am. Are you the Lord's tonight? And if you are, all that the Lord has given you belongs to him with yourself. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? Corinthians, he said, we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Whose I am. And then thirdly, and inseparably connected with it, whom I serve. His service was inspired by the recognition of whose he was. It was because he belonged to him that he served him. He served him as a result of belonging to him. And this service means that all that he did was brought under the authority of the will of God. All that he did. And his service was bounded by the commands of the Lord. And the moment he went beyond the command, he ceased to be a servant of God. So do you and so do I. The moment you begin to serve yourself, you cease serving the Lord. And this is the way in which you are to serve him in obedience to his revealed will. As his Lord directs you along the channels of his own will. And that's the question for you tonight again. Do you serve the Lord? There's a story told of King Cyrus. During one of his victorious campaigns, he took captive a noble prince, his wife and family. And when he interviewed the prince, he said to him, what will you give me if I let you go free? Well, he says, I'll give you half of what I possess. And if I let your children go, what will you give me? I'll give you, he said, all that I possess. 
If I let your wife free with your children, what will you give me? You set my wife free, said, and I will give you myself. I will give you my life for my wife and my family. Cyrus was so impressed with the prince's answer that he set himself and his wife and family free. When they were together that night, he said to his wife, you know, said, did you not agree with me that Cyrus is a very handsome man? Oh, says, I wouldn't know. I didn't notice Cyrus. He says, what do you mean? Oh, said, I didn't notice Cyrus. When I heard the answer that, that, that my man gave, that he would give his life for me, I had eyes for no one but my husband. And this is the way the Christian is. When he's in a right relationship with the Lord, he has eyes for no one but the Lord. Whom have I in the heavens high but thee, O Lord, alone? And on the earth you might desire, besides thee there is none. And when his mind is taken up with all that he is, nothing is too much for him to do for the one whom he, be who he belongs to and in whose service he is found. How does this find you tonight? Are you the Lord's? And are you prepared to serve him? Oh, my friend, what a better life you would have. What a better life I would have. If we gave more to him, more of ourselves, all of ourselves, to him. Why do you give so little to the Lord? of your life and of your time and your affections and your talents. Why? Why is the Free Church of Scotland like every other church constantly passing through times of financial crisis? Why? Oh, there's only one answer to that question. And I know that some of you don't like these things and you feel uncomfortable when these things are mentioned. So do I. So do I. And I thank God that I do feel uncomfortable under his word. Why do we find a church so often in financial distress? Because those who claim to be the Lord's aren't meeting their obligation to the Lord. That's why. And I challenge you tonight with these questions. Are you giving yourself to the Lord the way you ought to? And all that the Lord has given you, your families, yourself, your time, everything that the Lord has given you, are you bringing it under his authority and allowing him to direct your path instead of trying to run your life the way you want it? instead of bringing it to him. This is Paul's claim, whose I am and whom I serve. And he said further that he got this, he got this assurance for this special comfort I'm taking far too long. He said, hey, Lo, he said, fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. Here now, here's the answer. Why was this wonderful revelation given to Paul? Because not just the circumstance of the hour, but of the predetermined end that God had in you. Paul was on the road to Caesar. He was on the road to Rome. There was an onerous task. 
that awaited him. A great duty and a great privilege awaited him. And this is the way that the Lord works. Whatever the Lord calls you to, be assured of this, he will equip you for it. If God is telling you to do a certain thing, he will give you the necessary grace and the necessary equipment. If God is placing certain demands upon you and calling you to special privileges, these callings of God do not loose you from serving him, but bind you to greater and closer service. And God is going to give you comfort and counsel for every needed hour. That is the way he works. He will give grace and glory, and he will withhold no good thing from them that live uprightly. And then the special promise he got from, from heaven. Lo, he says, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. And you know that it was, I was C.H. Spurgeon who believed, who claimed, I believe, he said, that this was an answer to prayer. God hath given thee all those who sail with thee. Now, whether this is a reference to the fact that they were going to be saved from in the shipwreck or not, I'm not very sure. Or whether it is a promise that they would all be saved, that God had given them to Paul in answer to prayer, I'm not very sure. But there may be someone to say for it. If anyone, when you think of this man whose heart was so open to all people, whose great passion it was to preach the gospel, I believe that he prayed for them. Of course he did. And you who are Christians here tonight, whoever you are with, whoever you live with, whoever you work with, in the will of God, if God, wherever God has placed you, you are to pray for these people. Some of them may not like you. Some of them may not be very good to you. Some of them may persecute you. Some of them may have the knife in you. Some of them may want to murder to get rid of you as they try to get rid of Paul. Pray for them who despitefully use you. Pray for them. And you who are here tonight as non-Christians, perhaps you're desperate to get out of here. Well, just, you'll be, you'll be out in a minute. But you remember this, my friend. If there's someone living with you who loves the Lord, and you don't, you don't realize how much you owe that person. That person is praying for you. And you know, it'd be wonderful. That person, I'm saying, would give everything in the world to hear this assurance that Paul heard that night. What a wonderful night it would be for them if God were going to say to them, I have given you all those who are with you. Think of a believing mother praying for an unconverted husband and an unconverted family. What a night in storm would be for her if God were to say to her, I have given them all to you. A believing father and mother praying for unbelieving children, so on. What a wonderful assurance would be tonight. What a wonderful promise. I have given all them that sail with thee to you. And finally, this his confession of faith in the God of heaven. I believe, he says, God, that it shall be even as he has told me. This was his testimony in the face of friend and foe. The God who calls and the God who guides, the God who rules and overrules, the God who speaks, the God who comforts, the God who will fulfill all that he has promised 
This is the God I believe in, he said. He wasn't afraid to own him. Don't let you, don't you be afraid to own your Lord wherever you are. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will direct your path. Say with a hymn writer, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord. Don't you be ashamed of it either. Confess him in this world. There are many who do it. And it's worth, he's worth confessing. He's worth standing up for. And he bore this testimony to commend God to them. I believe this God. And he bore this testimony to bring comfort to them. Be of good cheer. I believe that God will fulfill what he has promised. And if you believe God tonight, confess that faith that you have. If you believe him, keep on believing. Oh, you're saying it's difficult. I know. But I'll tell you something else. The longer you put off confessing your faith in God, the more difficult you will find it to be to confess him. Have you ever noticed? When you're in a place and you feel that you ought to witness, if you don't do it the first time, it's going to be more difficult to do it the second time. Witnessing for God, confessing God, strengthens you to continue to believe in God. Well, the second point I want to deal with, and deal with very briefly, before drawing this to a close, is the very wonderful picture we have here and the beautiful illustration of the predestination of God and the responsibility of man. Now, what did God tell Paul? God told Paul, he assured Paul, that no one would be lost aboard that ship. He assured Paul of that. And Paul conveyed that assurance to all on board. Fear not, Paul. No God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. For for such be of good cheer. I believe, God, that it shall be even as it was told me. Now that is what God told him. This ship, everyone on this ship will be saved. Later on we read that when the storm wasn't abating, the sailors believed that they were heading for shipwreck. They began to take soundings. And they recognized that they were nearing rocks. And they were afraid that if they hit rocks, that they would be lost. So what did they do? They hatched a plan. They hoodwinked some people on board into thinking that they were casting anchors fore and aft. But what they were really doing was they were preparing to let the lifeboats down. And they were going to jump in and get away from the shipwreck. But their plan came to light. And Paul states the case. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these sailors abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes and let the lifeboat fall into the water. Now then, there you have the two things. On the one hand, God's assurance, no one on this ship would be lost. On the other, the condition that Paul states. Paul believed that they would be saved, but there's a condition. Unless these sailors stay aboard, we will not be saved. Now the two things are brought together. The salvation of all on the ship was absolutely guaranteed because God had said so. 
but certain conditions had to be fulfilled before they would be saved. They all had to stay aboard. Now then, this is the question. Did the laying down of the condition destroy the certainty of the preordained plan? No. The plan preordained was that they would all be saved. The means towards that salvation was that soldiers, centurion, sailors, prisoner, Paul, Luke and Aristarchus would all stay in the ship. And therefore the plan and the means towards the fulfilling of the plan were all under the sovereign decree of God. God who was sovereignly decreeing that they would all be saved was also demanding this responsibility of them all that they would stay in the ship to be saved. And that's the case with the salvation of the soul through faith in Jesus Christ. Predestination assures all who are to be saved that they will be saved. But it is absolutely unwarrantable to deduce from that that we needn't try to be saved if we will be saved anyway. That is the wrong application of our correct biblical doctrine. God purposes to save by his grace. But God has also purposed the means by which we will be saved. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. And just as Paul said to these sailors on board the ship and to the soldiers, look, unless these people stay on board, we will not be saved. So we say to you in the gospel, unless you believe, you will not be saved. That is the condition that God lays down. Take two illustrations, or one illustration. The farmer, or perhaps even the seaman, the fisherman, which some of you will understand perhaps better than the farmer. Take the farmer. The farmer reaps a bountiful harvest. Now, if he's a good Calvinist, he will say this. Well, it was decreed that this harvest would be bountiful. God knew exactly what I would have. God knew from all eternity that I would reap a bountiful harvest. But you see, if he's a good Christian, the farmer would say this. Though I know that God decreed that. I also know that God demands of me that I work, that I may reap. And that's that man putting what he believes into practice. He believes in the sovereignty of God, but he accepts his own responsibility. And I'll tell you this. There isn't a Christian in this church tonight who having believed the doctrine of election, sat back and said, well, if God has elected me to salvation, I'll be saved. And he finds that here tonight, a saved sinner. There isn't a person like that in this church tonight. But I'll tell you who's here as a Christian. The person who believes in the predestinating plan of God and who came to recognize his responsibility Godward that he had to believe, and unless he believed, he was lost. And he cried to God as a responsible being, God, help me to believe, or else I'm lost. 
and he came as a sinner to God, wanting what God alone could give him. And that's the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man not brought together. They can never be brought together, but placed side by side as parallel lines. God decrees, but you remember this, God has also demanded that you act responsibly. And there's no one here tonight who can never the charge against God because it's an unsaved state. God, you didn't elect me to salvation. That's why I'm not saved. Oh no, my friend. That's not the answer. The answer is this. You haven't applied yourself to the salvation that God has made available to you. And that's why you stand tonight in an unsaved state. There was a man once on his deathbed. A man who was greatly interested in theological debate and who was very good at arguing theological points, but he wasn't a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And a Christian friend went to see him. And even on his deathbed, he was prepared to argue about theological points. People that are very difficult to get through to. And he was particularly, he was particularly argumentative on the question of election and predestination. And the friend who went to see him that day in his deathbed said to him, Ah, William, he said, This is the decree that you have to deal with. He that believeth shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And that, my friend, is the decree that you have to deal with as well. You and I don't know who have been elected by God except those who believe in Christ. And I tell you tonight, all you have to do to know that you have been elected by God is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all God asks you to do. That is your responsibility. Are you going to act responsibly as we take our leave of this great book? We see Paul and those who were with him aboard ship casting themselves ultimately into the sea and getting to land. Some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship and so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. Well, I suppose there's a picture here as well, in the station here as well, of if one was going to apply it like that, the way that each one of us who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will end up on the shores of eternal glory. Some will swim ashore. Some will get there on boards and on planks. Some by the skin of their teeth, as it were. But this is the wonderful thing. All who commit their lives to the Lord will arrive ultimately at that blessed haven above. And this is the great question for you and for me tonight. Are we on the way to that heaven, to that rest, and to that haven? The gospel brings the hope of heaven to us all. 
And we're trying to follow through, we're trying to study and to follow through the story of the unfolding of this great gospel message. The mission that the church had in the world of the first century, in the first century world. A story that began with the death and the resurrection, the ascension of our Lord at Jerusalem. With the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church in Jerusalem. With the spreading of the church from Jerusalem to Samaria and to regions beyond and ultimately to Europe itself. We saw the place that Peter had in this unfolding story, the place that Paul had particular in it. And we take our leave now of this story as we leave this man ultimately in Rome. What happened to him, we don't know. We know that he was at least two years imprisoned. But then the Holy Spirit draws a veil over it all for each one of us. But I want to end with this note. The book of Acts is a story of the church's extension. The story of the gospel's triumphant forward march. Moving on. Bringing people under its sway. But all to whom the gospel come did not believe the gospel. And this is what I want to leave you with. Some of you in the past few days, and especially children, may have noticed on one or two television programs what used to happen in the old days when the Romans conquered a people. And Paul makes use of the same illustration right in the Corinthians in the first chapter in the first epistle and indeed in the second when they conquered a people they moved triumphantly through that area and the general who was in charge of the campaign was greatly honoured and everyone was caught up in that triumphal procession victor and vanquished were caught up in it and this is what Paul says of the gospel. He says to the church in Corinth, the gospel, he says, which we preach is either a savour of death unto death or a savour of life unto life. For many, the Roman conquest was a savour of life. For many other, a poor person it was a foreboding of death. And so is the gospel in every congregation. It's proclamation. You are either caught up in its triumph and you rejoice in its progress or it is unto you a savour of death. What is it to you tonight as we close the pages of this wonderful book what is the gospel to you? Are you caught up in its forward movement? Do you long for its success, for its blessing in this town and in the island and throughout the world tonight? Do you long for the day that God would give you all who are with you and that they would come with you under the sway and the authority 
of the gospel of Christ. Well, my friend, you answer the question. What does the gospel mean to you? Let us pray. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, and bless us with thy presence and part us with thy blessing tonight and forgive all our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat>